Thank you for joining us for the lessons from First Naz Podcast. Today I'm in John. I'm in John chapter 8. If you'd like to turn in your Bibles with me to John chapter 8. As you're turning there, let me just remind you of a few things happening in the, in the life of our church. Really, I just need to mention our uh, Thursday morning prayer times. So I pray with anybody who will join me via Zoom at, on Thursday mornings. Love to have you join me. It's a time of, of reflecting on Scripture a little bit, um, some, some wordy prayer and some silent prayer. And So I just invite anybody who would like to start their Thursday morning. We send that link out on Wednesday afternoon, and then it comes up uh, as a text at 555 if you're on our church text list. And so I encourage you to sign up for that list if you're not. Join us for prayer on Thursday mornings. During this season, I've been talking about the important work of forming our souls. Uh, it, is, it is work. <laughs> we must be intentional about the shape that our hearts and our, our lives take. If we are not intentional, we could just be formed by anything in this world. And so we, uh, we must be intentional about allowing the Lord to speak and, and to work in us in order to be shaped to be more like Jesus. The, the goal of the Christian life is that we would be shaped to be more like Jesus. And so through, through this season, on Wednesday nights, I've been looking at a book that addresses uh, being shaped to be more like Jesus, Renovation of the Heart by Dallas Willard. And on Sunday mornings, I've been looking at some of the things that we do, often unintentionally, sometimes intentionally, that shape us to be less like Jesus and take us, take us, derail us and deform us uh, to make us less like Christ. And so uh, we've been looking at some of the, the unspiritual practices or, or spiritual deformation. And today I've invited you to turn in your Bible to John chapter 8. I'm looking at a passage that has some scandal to it. It's got some scandal to it. And if you're looking in your Bible, you can see right away that there's scandal just in the title, but there's actually, there's scandal behind the text itself. And I'm going to try, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a deep dive into the scandalous history of John chapter 8 today. And this is, uh, this is not what is going to nourish you for <laughs> forever, uh, this, this scandalous history. But I think this is an important conversation to have at the beginning of a sermon that deals with a passage that if you're looking in your, in your Bible or if you have your Bible open on your phone, uh, if you have any footnotes or any marks in your Bible, there's, uh, there's marker around, around John chapter 7, the last verse of chapter 7, John uh, 7:53 through John 8:11. In my Bible, there's just a little line. In uh, other Bibles, there's, there's brackets. I, I looked at a bunch of different English Bibles this week, and I discovered there's all kinds of different ways that the English Bibles identify these passages. But what the note that says in mine is, most ancient Greek manuscripts do not include John 7.53 through 8.11. What on earth does that mean? What on earth are we talking about here? Uh, this is uh, this is this takes us to uh, one of the fields of biblical studies that is like the most important and kind of the primary study 
of the Bible. And that is to figure out what the Bible actually says. What are we supposed to read? What, are, what words belong in the Bible and what words don't belong in the Bible? And you're probably thinking, well, the words that were written belong in the Bible, right? The problem is we don't have any of the words that were written. See, what happened early on in the, in the life of the church, important teachers began to write important things. So the Apostle Paul wrote you know, his letters to the churches. Those were some of the first Christian documents written. And, and they got spread out to different churches. Paul wrote to specific churches. But like the church in Rome read their letter and they had Christians from other part of the world in Rome that heard their letter and they said, oh man, that's a really good letter by Paul. Would you make a copy of that? And we could take it and, and we could have it for ourselves. And this happened with all of the important early Christian writings. So there were, group, there were people that wrote down the stories about Jesus. There were more than just the four gospels that we have. There were, there were numerous gospels about Jesus that told the stories of Jesus and collected them in different forms and, and told them in different orders. And, and the, the, they, were, they were copied. And then those copies were copied. And then the copies of the copies were copied. And it just continued on in, until... There was no central authority overseeing the process. There was, no, there was nobody saying, hey, we should really hold on to the, that original letter that Paul wrote because nobody thought that that had any more importance than just the message that was being copied by the copies and the copies. And so we ended up about 400 years after Jesus' ministry, the end of the, the fourth century, we ended up with a, the church getting together and saying, hey, you know what? We have about 27 books, actually exactly 27 books, not about. We have 27 books that seem like they are authoritative to the church that we can agree on. Now, the book of Revelation, it almost didn't get in too weird. The book of, uh, the book of James almost didn't make the cut too legalistic, but they made it. They, you know, they, were, they were on the bubble, as they say. Um, there are, there are numerous books from, from early Christian history. The Gospel of Judas didn't make the cut, uh, but it's still kind of, it's, it's gained a renaissance recently, actually. It's kind of weird. So the 27 books, they, they were decided on, but then we didn't have any of the originals. So what did we have? We, we had all of these copies of copies, they're all, all in Greek. The Greek was the language they were written in. Uh, and, and they were all uppercase, all, uh, all caps, like, you know, all caps, which is kind of funny in our culture because all caps has a connotation. All caps, no spaces between words. So just blocks of letters written, written in uh, Greek. It's Greek, I mean... <laughs> the uh what we what we have currently what we have remaining of all of those all caps no spaces greek copies of new testament documents are about 5600 fragments 5600 fragments some of the fragments are, are really long i have a picture in here my first picture this is called the codex sinaiticus it, it's, uh, you can see all Greek, all caps, no spaces. Um, it, it is an entire collection of all 27 books of the New Testament in a book. 
Uh, and it dates back, we believe, to about the fourth century, about the time the church was deciding on those 27 books. And it was, it was hidden in a library in a monastery on the Sinai Peninsula of Egypt, like Eastern Egypt, for 1,500 years. Uh, it was discovered in 1844, this entire New Testament in Greek. People, like the entire New Testament in Greek, this collection, was something people would have killed for in the 700s because there weren't, it wasn't available completely in Greek. There weren't complete texts in, in Greek that anybody knew about for centuries. 1,500 years, this is hidden in a library. The, <laughs> I was thinking, uh, I don't know what order of, of nuns were, were in this monastery, like the Sisters of Perpetual Book Hoarding, I think it must be. Uh, so they, they had this book. We, we now have this, and, and this now could have influence in the text. That, like, when, when you get a really, really nerdy copy of the Greek New Testament, uh, the Codex Sinaiticus, it has its own uh, Greek letter, Latin, Greek, Greek letter, uh, no, Hebrew letter. It's a Hebrew aleph, I think, the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet that this text has in, in sorry, this is getting too, we're in the weeds. Get out of the weeds. Get out of the weeds, Paul. Okay. There, there are also fragments that are, uh, are not nearly as complete as this. The next picture I have here, this is called the Ryland Papyrus, uh, P52, for those who are keeping notes at home. P52, this is uh, about the size of a credit card, so it's, uh, it's blown up significantly here. Uh, it's about the size of a credit card. It's got seven lines of text uh, that you can see. This is from uh, John 18. I think one side is John 18, like verses 31 through 33, and then the back side is verses 36 and 37. But obviously, it's not the whole, the whole thing. It's not the whole line. This has a little bit of spacing that could be, be words, but not, not all of it by any means. Uh, really interesting. This one, uh, scholars believe, it dates back to about uh, 150 AD. So like almost within a lifespan of Jesus's ministry, almost a little bit more. Uh, so scholars have the, the task then of taking these 5,600 Greek manuscripts, fragments, the size of a credit card, right? They, they have the job of trying to determine how do we take these 5,600 pieces of evidence and get back to as close as we can what was originally written. Because what we want, like what we think would be authoritative for us as believers would be the documents, you know, the, the letters that Paul himself dictated. That at the end he writes, see I am writing in my own hand. Wouldn't we love to see what it looked like when Paul wrote in his own hand? Um, we, we would love to have those original documents. We would love to have the first copy, the, you know, the original edition of the Gospel of John that John himself uh, penned as, as he was, was writing it for his community to preserve the stories of Jesus. Scholars try to take all of these fragments and, and boil them down to something that, that resembles that. 
And so they have, they have a few tricks that they play. You know, uh, the copyists, they were, they were really careful, but you can imagine that if you're copying that and it's all, all caps, no spaces, you could easily skip a line. Or you could easily duplicate a line. Or you could easily skip a letter. You could easily duplicate a letter. And scholars have found all kinds of those kinds of errors, very easily explainable errors. Uh, scholars also notice that there's a tendency of copyists to make things easier to read, right? Don't you, if you were copying something that you had written or something that somebody else had written, wouldn't, wouldn't you just like, if they, if they misused a pronoun or misused a, an article, like, wouldn't you just kind of smooth it out? And so scholars say, yeah, if, if it's smoother reading, it's probably newer we want to we try to get back to the original and, and use the one that's harder to read. So they have all these tricks, all of these, these, uh, these ways that they try to determine. Archaeology helps a lot. You know, when, when you find a scrap of paper that's in with other, other pieces of evidence that date it to a specific time, we, we use that. They, they do chemical dating, like carbon dating, um, all those kinds of things. It's, it's, a, it's a whole thing. You should look into it. It's called textual criticism. Uh, if, you're, if you're interested, that's the field of study, textual criticism. It's not about criticizing anything. It's about trying to get back to the original text. So what does all this mean? Like, that was a deep dive into the weeds, and I apologize. I just, I get pretty geeked out and excited when I start thinking about textual criticism and 5,600 fragments. It's just, it's really interesting to me. So thank you for that. What do we do with it, though? What do, we, what do we do if we're people who, like, we believe that Scripture is, is for us, God's revelation, like, how do we, how do we deal with that? Isn't, isn't it concerning? Isn't it concerning? Should we be concerned uh, that we don't have any of those, those original documents? Let me raise my hand and say, no, I don't think it's a problem. I don't think it's a problem. And let me tell you why I don't think it's a problem that we don't have any of those original documents. There's two, two big reasons that I think it's... I, I think we don't need to fear, and I think it is keeping in the character of God that we don't. The, the first is that we believe that God has, has inspired and orchestrated the process of those original documents being broke up, broken up into a bunch of copies of copies and brought to us in, in the form of, of the text that we have now. We believe in the inspiration of Scripture. We believe God inspired the, the writers to write. We believe God inspires us when we read it with prayer and honestly seeking God's truth. I think we can believe that God has inspired the process of getting it to us. I think we can trust in God to, to give, give us the message that we need. The, the second reason, I, I'm just not all that concerned uh, about not having the original documents is because of the human tendency to make gods out of things that aren't gods. And I, I just think, I have a hunch I have a hunch that if we had those original documents, you know, if you could go to Rome today and worship at the feet of the Pauline original letter, like that would be, that would become an important Christian pilgrim site. We would all want to go and see that, that letter that Paul wrote, see, I am writing with my, my own hand. 
we love scripture. We love scripture. I, I commend scripture to you. You should be reading your Bible. I will wag my finger at you as your pastor. You should be reading your Bible. You should commit the words of Scripture to memory so that if ever you're away from your Bible, you can quote it to yourself and encourage yourself. Scripture, we love Scripture. We worship God. We love Scripture because it reveals to us Jesus Christ, who is the living word. He leaps out of every page we worship him. We don't worship the book. Okay? So, we, it's just sort of keeping with the character of God, I think. To allow us to, to think for ourselves. To, to have to, like, struggle with how do I understand and trust God. To trust God to say he has preserved the, the true message about Jesus in the, in the documents we have. I, there is not much that is more like God than God saying, I want my people to trust me. Uh, that would be a God who would not allow for the preservation of those original documents so we could go to Rome and worship them. So I'm not concerned. I'm not concerned. But then here we are. Here we are on Romans 8. And it says, most ancient Greek manuscripts do not include Romans 7.53 through 8.11. And so, then, like, what do we do? <laughs> what do we do? If, we, if the most ancient texts that we have, the most ancient manuscripts and fragments, don't include this story, what do we do? You'll find this at several points in your New Testament. You'll find this at several different points. The end of the Gospel of Mark is another example. Uh, I think the first thing we do is we, we look for how it, how it fits with what we understand about God's message. The end of the Gospel of Mark, I'd commend you to read the end of the Gospel of Mark. Some of what it says doesn't fit with what, what else is spoken in Scripture and therefore should not be, be made doctrine. I just, I'll leave it there. That's a, I, you're welcome. I won't go down that rabbit trail right now. <laughs> Romans 8, when, or sorry, John 8. When we look at John 8, what we find here is, is a very, uh, is a picture of Jesus that fits very well with the other pictures of Jesus that are in the Gospel of John and Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And, and so, I think, you know, we shouldn't make a doctrine out of anything that is found only in Romans 8. I don't, I don't think we should do that. But I think that the picture we see of Jesus in Romans 8, 1 through 11, is a picture of Jesus that's very Jesus-y. It's, it's very much in keeping with the Jesus as he is revealed throughout, throughout the rest of, of Scripture. So, that is, uh, that is text criticism. <laughs> that, uh, thank you. Thanks for staying awake. Thank you for uh, letting me talk about that. This is just an area of, of biblical studies that is really fascinating. It's not something that probably edifies your soul. It probably doesn't make you a better Christian tomorrow when you go to work. And so, maybe we should look at the contents of Romans 8, or John 8, and see if we can't 
can't find something. Maybe I'm supposed to be preaching from Romans 8 today. I don't know. Uh, we, uh, why don't we look at the contents of John 8 and see if there's something that maybe could help us uh, with our daily living. So John 8 begins in verses 1 through 5 with this. It's the, the woman caught in adultery. A woman caught in adultery is the heading. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning, he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? So, it, the Gospel of John, Jesus gets into this cycle of daily returning to the temple. He was staying outside of Jerusalem, and then daily he'd walk in to, to teach at the temple. He's there every day, and this is just one of those days early in the week. He, he's teaching in the temple. He is, uh, he's got a crowd around him. He's got a crowd around him, and the religious leaders come, and they disrupt what he is doing for a moment and sort of thrust themselves into the situation to make this poor sinner the center of everybody's attention. And, and they bring everybody's attention on, onto this poor, poor sinner. The, you can kind of picture the scene where Jesus is in front of a crowd of devotees who are listening to him teach, and they throw the woman right down there in front of him. And, and we, we have this picture, right? This, this poor woman just like trying to disappear, right? Like you can, you can almost feel her shame. It's palpable. She's, she is trying to, like everything she has, she's trying to cover all of her, all of her being. And, and she just wishes she could just disappear, uh, her, her shame and her loneliness, uh, her, her sin, it's, it's all on display there in, in the temple, like this really holy place. And there she is, an, an, a known sinner. And she's thrown even worse than being in the temple, this holy place. She's thrown at the feet of Jesus, this holy man, this guy, everybody wants to put their best face to Jesus, right? He, he is so popular right now. Everybody thinks he, he is this holy person. Man, why, of all the people in the world, why, why at the feet of Jesus? There she is, the lone adulterer. It's an oxymoron, right? <laughs> uh, if she's caught in the act, there was someone else there. Uh, but it is, it is less socially acceptable to accuse someone as invulnerable as an adult man of being a sinner publicly than it is of a lone woman. Uh, these religious leaders, they're, they are happy to throw this lone woman in front of a crowd and say, look at this sinner. Look at this this thing. Uh, they, they don't want to bring a man 
a grown adult man, he, he could be a peer of theirs on some level. They don't want anybody that could be a peer. It's interesting to think how easily the Pharisees do this, right? They, they use someone who is vulnerable as a pawn in the bigger game they're playing, right? This is, this is not about the woman. She is, she is a pawn in the game. She is a tool for them to use. Because really, they, they are trying to trip Jesus up. They're in a battle for the heart and soul of the nation of Israel. They know that Jesus is not the leader that we want influencing the people. So they bring this woman, this known sinner. If we bring a known sinner in front of Jesus, surely he will say something wrong. He'll either, he'll either offend his crowd and alienate his, his followers, or he'll say something so blatantly illegal that we can try him for heresy. And, and the religious leaders had the perfect game piece to bring, the lone adulterer. She, she is the perfect pawn for them. And, and so they use her to stir up the emotions of the people. They try to make her a lightning rod for, for the wrath of God. What they are engaging in here is the unspiritual practice of dehumanizing another person. The, un, the unspiritual practice, it, it happens so quickly in the human heart. <laughs> this is an unspiritual practice that we are, we are incredibly good at. Uh, in our culture. There was news this week, you saw the news this week, uh, another professional athlete squandering money that he raised for, for charity. Oh my goodness, a selfish celebrity once again. You can't trust them, right? We, professional athletes, like they're really easy to, to pick on, right? Because none of us are professional athletes. They're just selfish people that get paid too much for playing a game if they're even people, right? I mean, they're just entertainment. It happens so easily. Anybody who is any different from us, if they, if they have a different type of job than we do, if they live in a different part of the country, I mean, we all know about those people that live there, don't we? It, it happens so easily for us when, when we think about anybody who looks just a little bit different than us. And we'll, we'll separate over things as silly as a hobby that somebody engages in. And we know about those people. Oh, they like doing that. And, and our, our propensity to do it publicly, behind, behind a screen, <laughs> makes it even easier. And social media, it's so easy to, to just not recognize not even consider that the person about whom we are speaking is a fellow human being. That person's just a, a toy in the game, right? It's just a picture on the screen. It's not, it's not a human being. But when we engage in this, de dehumanizing another, another human being is a supremely unspiritual discipline. It is a supremely deforming spiritual practice. Let me explain why. The heart of being formed to be like Jesus, 
the heart of spiritual formation. This is important. I hope you're, I haven't put you to sleep yet. This is important. The heart of being shaped to be like Jesus is to, to develop in us the spirit of Jesus and the values of the kingdom of heaven. Stay with me. To develop in us the spirit of Jesus and the values of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus and the kingdom of heaven begin with this truth. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That's Dallas Willard, that's not me. Uh, the, the kingdom of heaven begins with us understanding and putting into our, our hearts and our minds the truth that Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That is, that is the beginning of being formed like Jesus, for us to understand that. It is also us believing that about every other human being we come into contact with. When we, when we dehumanize other people, we believe, we believe, Jesus loves me, this I know for the Bible tells me so, doesn't apply in select cases. We have already allowed the formation of the Holy Spirit to be derailed in us. The Pharisees and experts of the law show us exactly what it looks like in, in John chapter 8. The way they do it is by talking about a woman. She's a sinner. They're, they're technically talking to Jesus but they're playing to the crowd, right? Really, they're not giving Jesus his full credit as a human being either. They, they want him out of the game too. They, they're playing to the crowd. They're talking to Jesus. They're like actors. They're talking to somebody else on the stage. They really want the audience to hear. And the woman, I mean, the sinner, let's not... Let's not dignify her with, with even a title that could be confused as human. She's a prop. She's a prop in the play. She is much less than, than human. And, and then in verse 6, we see Jesus begin to act. And Jesus teaches us the antidote to the unspiritual practice of, of dehumanizing others. In, in verse 6, we read, they were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer. So he stood up again and said, all right, all right. You're right, you're right. The law demands it. She was caught. All right. But let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. These are dangerous words for a preacher. Jesus refuses to get swept up in the emotion, right? 
uh, he refuses to get swept up in the, the emotion. We, we picture Jesus as being close to her. Like all of the dramatic displays of this passage that we've seen, he kneels right next to her on the ground and writes in the dirt. Maybe, maybe she can even read what he's, he's drawing or writing in the dust. But the, the Bible doesn't actually say how close or far apart they were. He just stoops down. He buys time. He takes a minute. He breathes. He lets the, the hatred in the air sort of dissipate a little bit while the Pharisees try to stir it up. The Pharisees and the, the teachers of the law, they demand an answer. Come on, what are you doing? Are you serious? You're just going to write in the dust? You're not going to even acknowledge the sinner? Aren't you going to do something about the sinner here? We've got, a, we've got a known sinner here, Jesus. We've got to do something. Can you please just stop goofing around? Can you just give us an answer? Give us an answer. All we need is an answer. Answer the question. Shall we stone her? Would you like to be the first one to stone her? Because I'm sure that you would, because she's a known sinner, and you're a holy person. He doesn't, but Jesus doesn't, doesn't start the game of he said, she said. He doesn't, he doesn't engage in whataboutism. He doesn't look for a loophole. He doesn't really look for a loophole. Jesus does what the Pharisees and the teachers of the law just refused to do and could never have imagined doing. Jesus, Jesus forces them, even if it's just for a second, to identify with a known sinner. The woman caught in, in sin suddenly becomes a mirror for, for these men who are impervious to any accusations. These men whose, whose sins are, you know, in the, in the dark corners of their heart are hidden from anybody who would try to go finding them. The, these men, for, for just the briefest of moments, have to, have to admit that just like the known sinner right there in front of everybody, they too have fallen short of the glory of God. They too have allowed sin to, to enter their lives. And, and maybe those important religious teachers have more in common with her than they would ever care to admit. And so we read their response in verse 9. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. I told you when I started, this is a scandalous passage. It's got scandal just even being here, right? <laughs> it's, it's scandalous for a couple of other reasons, though. Jesus' willingness to talk to a sinner, sinner 
is a scandal that happens over and over again in the Gospels. Jesus' willingness to be considered a friend of sinners, it's a, it's a scandal every time. Every time. But Jesus' turn from, from the religious leaders who want to talk about a woman. He turns away from those who want to talk about someone to the someone that they would make a pawn in their game. That is the antidote to the spiritual, uh, unspiritual practice of dehumanizing others. We have to be aware when we are tempted to talk about other people. We have to turn to talk to those we are tempted to talk about. Again, this is dangerous for a preacher because I, I'm one to talk about. As, as people who would be formed by Jesus, we have to turn away from talking about we have to be willing to press into relationship with the people we would prefer to talk about. That's, that's a challenge. It's a scandal. <laughs> because we might end up in conversations with people that we don't want people to see us talking to. It's a scandal. Because we might see ourselves in people that we want to talk about. It's a scandal. People might think we're friends with people like that. But it's the antidote to the unspiritual practice. There's a second scandal in this passage, and it's probably the scandal that like, the people who included it here really wanted us to get to. Uh, the the bigger scandal, really, in all of this is Jesus' willy-nilly forgiveness. If not forgiveness, his, his unwillingness to condemn a known sinner. Now, thank heavens, it's a text that didn't appear in the earliest manuscripts, so maybe we cannot make that a doctrine of the church. You know, Jesus is willy-nilly forgiving. forgiving. But... <laughs> I commend to you Matthew chapter 9, <laughs> where Jesus sees a paralyzed man and he says, take heart, my child, your sins are forgiven. No, no conversation, no repentance, no religious ceremony. Take heart, my child, your sins are forgiven. The religious leaders lose their minds. They say, how can you do that? Nobody can forgive sins except for God. And Jesus says, you're right. Nobody can forgive sins except for God. <laughs> so what would be harder for me to say? What would be harder for me to say? Your sins are forgiven or to this paralyzed man, be healed of your paralysis, stand up and walk away. I'll tell you what, religious leaders, just so you know, I do have authority to forgive sins. Hey, Buddy, whose sins are forgiven, stand up. Walk out of here. He stands up and leaves the place rejoicing. This, Jesus' willy-nilly forgiveness <laughs> is, is something that's a little bit shocking. And, and it, 
It's a reminder to those who, who might feel like in, in this holy place, in front of this holy God who we have come to worship, you might feel like a little bit of an outsider. If, if you feel like a little bit of an outsider in this holy place in front of this holy God, may I just remind you how much he loves to forgive and to restore. It's a word of caution to those of us who feel like we belong in this holy place in front of this holy God. We might be disappointed at who we are next to in heaven. <laughs> we need to remember as people who think we belong in this holy place in front of this holy God. This holy God loves to forgive and to restore. Jesus tells a woman, go and sin no more. We like that. That's comforting to us who feel like we belong. We serve a God who loves to restore sinners. Who loves to offer forgiveness. So this morning, if, you, uh, if you're just not sure if you belong... You do. You do. If, if you would like to, to have a sense that you do, we'll pray together. We'll talk to this God who, who loves to forgive and to restore. And, and we, will, we will let him speak to our hearts. And I hope this morning that you can hear him saying, I don't condemn you either. Go on. Go from here. Don't go back to your sin. But go on. I don't condemn you either. And maybe those of us who think we belong here in this holy place, maybe we would be reminded to turn toward those people that we just, we like to talk about and aren't sure if we're ready to talk to. Why don't we pray together? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this story that we found in Scripture. <laughs> thank you, God, for preserving John 8, verses 1 through 11. We give you credit for it. We believe that you orchestrated the process. We praise you for this powerful story that we think reveals the authentic Jesus to us, a message of, from our Savior, a moment in time in his life 2,000 years ago. Thank you. Thank you for scripture. May we, may we voraciously come to scripture and read and understand what you have for us so that we can worship you better. Lord, we understand from the story that we have seen today the scandal of Jesus' unwillingness to condemn. I pray for those this morning who feel that maybe they don't quite belong here. I pray that you would just 
whisper in their ears. May they hear you say, I don't condemn you either. I don't condemn you. Go. Go on, live your life and draw closer to me. I mean, don't, don't go on sinning. But may they hear Jesus say clearly this morning, I don't condemn you. Lord, many of us have been, have been trying to work that out for years and years and years. We, we, even those of us who think we belong here, occasionally are reminded how far away we are from belonging here in this holy place in front of this holy God. May all of us this morning hear your words of forgiveness. May all of us receive the truth of how slow to anger you are how quick to forgive, how quick to listen you are, God. You don't care about our justifying excuses. You don't, you don't need that garbage. <laughs> God, you, you love restoring sinners. So restore us, God. We confess that one of the ways that we need your restoration is our tendency to want to, to talk about people, to make people less than, to treat people as pawns in the games that we are playing. And Lord, if you were to continue your rest, restoration in us, your restoring work, it would look like us turning towards the people we are talking about. Turning away from the people who simply want to talk about and turning towards the people we are talking about. If we were to be restored, Lord, we, we would build relationship. We would press into relationship with people that make us uncomfortable, with people who seem different, we would press into a relationship with people that we would kind of like to condemn as sinners. This would be very unlike much of our lives and our culture. Help us, God, to be, to be restored, to be different. Help us to become more and more like Jesus. Oh, Lord. Continue to go with us into this week. Speak to our hearts, Lord. We love you, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Why don't you stand up? Let me just remind you again, the key value, the first value of Jesus and his kingdom. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. God bless you as you go in this truth. You are dismissed.